So this week is going to bring us to the end of our micro-series on faith, calling, and today we're talking about desire. Uh, all as compelling forces towards the presence of God. We saw faith exemplified through the life of Abraham, the father of our faith, who upon encountering the presence of the living God in the midst of his pagan, idol-worshipping life in Ur of the Chaldees, believed God, abandoned all that he knew and understood to be truth, all that he had built and accomplished, all of his relationships, friends, and culture to go to a place that God promised to show him when he got there. Faith compelled Abram to pursue God. Then last week, we looked at the calling of God as the compelling factor in the life of Moses. Not a compulsion to do, but a compulsion to be. And in being, discovering that the calling is, in fact, a calling to God himself. Now, this week, we want to look at a third dynamic that draws us to pursue the presence of God and that is the compelling force of desire, desire. Let's return to the tent of meeting to meet another individual in pursuit of the presence. In Exodus 33, beginning in verse 7. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just come before you this morning. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who has gone before us, as the writer of Hebrews says, into the holiest place of all. Lord, who stands in your presence consistently, Lord, making intercession for us. We, O oh God, desire to hear your voice ourselves. So we invite you to speak to us today out of your word, Lord, out of our heart's desire to know you in a deeper way, Lord, open our minds and our hearts to hear and to understand what the Spirit is saying to the church today, that we would be current with you, O oh God, that we would be following your presence, doing your stuff and not our own. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, come into this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, 
a young man would not depart from the tent. To me, this is one of those I wish I was a fly on the wall statement. There's just enough stated here to stir my curiosity, but not enough to satisfy it. What went on in that tent after Moses made his exit? What kept Joshua from leaving? I mean, it clearly states that Joshua was Moses' assistant. The inference is there is at least that Joshua probably entered the tent with Moses. As Moses' assistant, there must have been things Joshua was required to do, especially as it relates to Moses walking in and completing what God had spoken to him. And maybe that's exactly what it was. Joshua heard the voice of God speaking to Moses, and in hearing his voice, he began to desire that for himself. Listen to what Jesus says in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. It doesn't say, my sheep hear my voice when I speak expressly to them. My sheep hear my voice. Have you ever seen someone in a really deep relationship with the Lord? And your heart gets stirred and you say, oh man, if I could know the Lord like that. You see, I think this is what Joshua was experiencing. I hear him speaking to Moses and I want it. Again, the word know in the Greek, Jesus says, and I know them, is gnosko. It has the same meaning as the Hebrew word we looked at a couple of weeks ago, yada, in the Hebrew, used by God when speaking about knowing Abraham. He knew Abraham in an intimate knowing. That is a life-producing knowing. This is what began to happen with Joshua. He heard the great shepherd's voice, and the desire was birthed in his heart, a compulsion towards intimacy, a desire to know and to be known by God, a desire to experience more than the sound of his voice speaking to another man. No, Joshua desired the presence of an opportunity to rip off his sandals and stand barefoot on holy ground, to be overwhelmed by the awesomeness of the holy presence of the living God, to fall face down in worship and to utter things by the Spirit that cannot be spoken by the fleshly tongue. Have you ever heard his voice? In explanation of this desire, perhaps the best that can be declared was powerfully spoken by the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7. He says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, the surpassing worth 
There are few things worth more than this, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, of gnoscoing Christ, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may gnosko him, that I may be intimate with him, that I might be producing new life all around me because we are so intimate that that's what flows out of me and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. And you know you can't do that without him being really close. Paul goes on to describe his desire in terms of an internal conflict within his own life. In Philippians 1.21, he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. He's in conflict. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire... The thing that really compels me, my desire, is to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And it almost seems as if this turmoil... This inner conflict is an unavoidable if you're truly going to move forward in the pursuit of God. Let me snatch out a few scriptural statements that reflect this as a reality in the kingdom. Paul addressing the Galatian church in Galatians 3. He says this, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has confused your mind? what he's essentially saying. Who's gotten in your head? He then goes on to ask, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, Paul sees a conflict going on in the lives of of the Galatians. He recognizes that inside them there's a war, there's a battle going on. And the scripture says that the spirit strives against the flesh, and the flesh strives against the spirit. There's a war going on inside of you. There's something in you that desires Christ above all else, and yet there's something else in all of us that desires self to be above all else. It's a battleground in there, isn't it? Sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. Now, here is a classic, and I think today, even more so as we, as the Church of Jesus Christ, have come to accept the mere utterance of a sinner's prayer as conclusive evidence of a true conversion experience. I want you to listen to the words of the Apostle James. He is the brother of Jesus, the lead elder and pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. So his words have real authority. He says this in James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? 
Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Well, you do well. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? There's a conflict in the church. There's a conflict in the believer. We want to do. We want to do. We want to somehow say, oh, I can make myself acceptable to God by doing, by doing, by doing. When God is saying, I want you to be, if you, if you will be what flows out of you, you, you'll do the stuff. But it won't be to position yourself. I think that conflict like this is an, an inherent process of salvation, which I believe is far more than just a sinner's prayer being uttered at a particular moment in time. And I'm not saying that that isn't an important event. What I am saying is that is not the end all of conversion. It is the start of an ongoing process of being continually redeemed from the world and from self and being transformed to and into the image of Christ because our desire for him becomes greater than our desire for self-preservation. And that process includes what Henry Blackaby calls in his book, Experiencing God, a crisis of faith. I remember years ago, she was probably 30 years ago now, sitting with Erskine Holt, gone on to be with the Lord. He's a wonderful prophetic brother and apostle. And I was going through some, some real conflict in, in my life, in my ministry, and um, sitting with Erskine, he says, yo, Dick, get used to it. Do yourself a favor, get used to it. He says, because God at various points in your walk, as long as you're following him, will intentionally bring you to such a crisis that you'll have to, in that moment, make a decision. I'm going to go on with him no matter what the cost, or you stay frozen in that place. God does this. You know, it's easy to blame the enemy. Oh, that enemy is after me, you know. I'd much rather say God is after me, and yes, Lord, I submit. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes, I want to pursue you. I desire you more than I desire self-preservation. At that place, we're forced to make decisions or choices that we might not otherwise make, and the choice we make will either reinforce the strength of self in us or break it down in order to draw us closer to and into a deeper dependency on Christ. who is the author and finisher of our faith. And I think in the Western church, we're so quick to acknowledge Christ as the author of our faith. 
oh, yeah, I received Jesus today. You know, I prayed the prayer, and now, I, now I'm a Christian. Now I'm a follower of Jesus. You know, but we're not so quick to allow him to be the finisher of our faith. You know, when he starts saying, well, you know, you need to let that go. What? I don't remember that in the prayer. <laughs> Simplest way to understand the why of this process is given by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. This is the Lord speaking. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. What are you thinking about? What's going on up here? What are the thoughts that are consuming your life at this time in your life? Are they God's thoughts? Probably not. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Then he goes on to say, <laughs> I like this, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. What are you doing right now? What are you doing with your time? What are you doing with your resources? What are you doing with your affections? What are you doing with your ways? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah precludes this statement with a wonderful salvation invitation. He says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Then he goes on to say, this is how you do it, let the wicked forsake his way. What are you doing with your life right now? What are you doing with your time? What are you doing with your affection? What are you doing with your resources? Where are you investing yourself? What are you investing yourself into? Let the wicked forsake their way. Whatever you're doing that is not of God, I want to say to you, abandon it today and seek the Lord while he may be found. And the unrighteous man, let him abandon his thoughts. What are you thinking about? What's consuming your mind? And listen, I'm not going to ask you to tell me because I think some of it would be horrendous. What are the deep thoughts of your mind? I can't look in your head. Thank God. But you know what? He does. He does. And sometimes he rejoices, and sometimes he's grieved. What are the thoughts that you have to abandon today so his thoughts can be in your mind? He will not let his thoughts ride side by side with ours. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The word that Isaiah uses in seek the Lord while he may be found is the Hebrew word darash. In the Strong's Concordance, it's one, number 1875, and it means this, to frequently, in other words, to do often this, to follow to pursue, to search for, by implication, to seek and ask, specifically to worship. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Do it 
often, frequently, worship, seek him, ask of him. You don't know when he's passing by. You know, if you're doing it frequently, you might hit the right moment in time where he just happened to be walking by you and say, oh, God, and he says, what? Right? Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, seek him while he may be found. You know what? If he passes by, you can cry out all day long, and you've missed him. You've missed him because you're not doing it off. Don't wait for the crisis. Don't wait for the situation or the circumstances to be so overwhelming that you have no other choice but to cry out to the Lord. He's near to us, nearer now than he ever was. This has been declared the year of his presence in all kinds of denominations across the country. The Spirit is speaking the same thing to his church. I want to be present with you. And what does that mean for you? It means everything. If it's worth anything, it's worth everything. All of these acts of darash are acts of desire to pursue, to ask, to follow, to search for. I asked in the earlier service uh, for a show of hands of married couples. See, married couples. If you got your mate next to you, turn to them and say this. I remember when I first began to pursue you. Huh? I remember, Martha, when I first began to pursue you. I, I remember five and six hours on the phone looking at my watch, and it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and I said, Oh, honey, where is the time gone? <laughs> huh? Right? All, all my attention and all my affection. I wanted this woman. I desired her, and my desire was expressed through actions, through behavior, through words, through gifts. You know, she knew. She knew I was after her. My desire was for her. There was no mistaking that. Can Christ say that about you today? I know that your desire is for me. If he was to appear in this room, would he come to you and say, oh, I so love spending hours with you on the phone. Jesus on the main line. Huh? Isn't that what he wants? And if you desire more of Jesus to know him in a more intimate way, you'll encounter conflict. Is that right, Gretch? Gretch has had a hard week. <laughs> yeah. A lot of conflict in her pursuit right now. Right. Crisis of faith. So we expect good things. Pray for Gretch in this if you get a chance. If you desire to be used of God in a greater capacity, 
Conflict will often be the tool God uses to refine you and to build you up in the inner man. So if you're looking for that perfect church where there is no conflict, good luck. (laughs) We don't make those here. How many of you remember our attempt at bringing Christian mentoring program into the middle school a few years ago? Remember that? I mean, that was... So exciting. There was so much energy behind that. And it looked, oh, man, he, the school was excited. The principal was excited. And, you know, all of a sudden, bam, we were out. You know who came against us? It wasn't the secular teachers union. It was the church. The church shut us down. Hmm. The church. A group of non-evangelical churches who shut us down, and their accusation was that we as evangelicals had an agenda, and that agenda was not politically correct. The church shut down the church from doing the work of the church. Conflict. Conflict. Isn't that amazing? So the fundamentalists think that the charismatics are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. The liberal Christian church thinks the fundamentalists are a bunch of radical right-wing fanatics. The charismatics just thinks that everyone who doesn't dance and sing in tongues is just too darn religious. And in the midst of all of that, and a whole lot more, each group believes they are serving the cause of Christ. Conflict. And it's as it should be. What? It's as it should be. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 10. Do not think. I should just leave it there. Hey, I'll go home now. (laughs) That'll save a lot of heartache. (laughs) Just stop thinking. (laughs) Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than he more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Are you hearing this? And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. It's all about desire and intimacy, and he will not be shared. He will not be shared. He will not be part of a threesome. He's not Mormon. Is he worth it? 
careful answering that. Do you desire him enough to lose it all for the sake of that call? And let your desire be toward him. And in the following and the pursuing and the seeking Jesus through frequent worship, his presence will supply the faith you need to fulfill the call you hear, the call to be with Jesus, the call to be with Jesus. I want to close with Jesus' own statement on the issue, and then we're going to pray. And next week we'll be exploring the how of entering into the presence, and I think it's going to get really good. Okay? I got a real expectation in my heart. Listen to what Jesus says. This is in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Now, I have a Martha. I have a legitimate, real Martha. Right? She's a biblical Martha. Right? She had a sister. Martha has a sister, Mary. Okay, so, and this is all scripted who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me, will you? But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha. You can tell this is familiar dialogue with us. Martha, Martha. (laughs) I love the scriptures. (laughs) You are anxious and troubled about many things. Now, listen to this. I want you to key into this verse. Because the next time you're wondering, Lord, what do I do? Lord, how do I get out of this? Lord, what do I say? How do I pray? The next time you have a question for the Lord, you're in a crisis, you're in a situation, he says this, one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. In other words, this one thing covers every situation. He doesn't say this is one of a dozen things you should make in a list. And if you do this every day, you know, every week, for every month, for the next year, I'll answer your prayer. This one thing is necessary to answer every question you have for the Lord, every situation and every circumstance. Sit at his feet and listen to his voice, and this good portion will not be taken away. One thing is necessary. But one thing that Joshua found in the tent of meeting that he could not pull away from was hearing the voice of God. And the desire for that is the one thing that is necessary.